0: Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week I'm joined by sommelier Jared Krauss, who is the wine director over at Agni here in Columbus, Ohio. Agni opened earlier this year. It is Avishar Barua's second restaurant. Joya's was his first and Joya's wasn't supposed to be a restaurant really and became its own thing. It's kind of daytime cafe, lunch spot and Agni is his evening spot. Tasting menu, they do have an a la carte component to it as well but they got a little chef's counter back in the kitchen that you can go to. Open Fire, really, really awesome restaurant. It's in the brewery district, Stones Throw from lawbird like right around the corner, a street over from Chapman's Eat Market to as well. So right off a high street there. So if you've never been, make sure to check it out. It's awesome time, awesome experience. We'll most likely win, I would assume, best new restaurant for Columbus, because it opened this year too as well when those local awards start coming out and everything. And who knows? We've been in twice, had a great time both times, did the tasting menu and everything. Uh, which was awesome. And then I had some bar bites too when we were on our way to another event and stopped in and got to see Jared and and Avishar and them. The wine list there is amazing. It's maybe the best wine list uh, in the city for a restaurant. Like it's awesome, just the different stuff they have on there. Super unique, but not overly complicated. Not really going to scare you either if you don't really understand it. Uh, As somebody who's kind of going through the wine stuff now, when I got a chance to take a look at the wine list, when we were at the bar area, it was just, there's just stuff on there that nobody else in the city kind of has, it feels like. So uh, Jared is from, you know, the area and, you know, went to Ohio State, spent a bunch of time at the Refectory. So Taylor Wolf, Chris Dillman have spent time there too as well. And uh, then he went out west. And worked at some Michelin places, um, Gary Danko and everything, and and wound up going through all that and and coming back and wound up at Agni and is running the wine program there. And it's awesome. Um, So again, stop in if you haven't. It's an awesome new spot, adding to kind of this collection of chef driven owned restaurants that are popping up here in columbus which is great to see you know you look at cincinnati you look at detroit we've kind of said it time and time again on this podcast but those cities they have amazing food scenes that people don't really know about because they are so individually driven from the ownership standpoint from the people running the restaurants and everything it's not big corporate chains though you can find those elements uh the corporate kind of chain element in those cities but for so long you know columbus was kind of dominated by the Cameron Mitchell restaurant group and still is to some effect. They have a lot of pl- successful restaurants or around town consistent too as well. We've had a few different alumni on the podcast over the years so that have spent time there. But, you know, even with them opening more and more restaurants, it does feel like there is a shift here in Columbus to more individual kind of chef owned restaurants, which is something that's just great to see. And and I think the city desperately needs it. So hopefully we keep on that trajectory. It was just kind of a blip and a slowdown because of COVID, which affected every restaurant scene in every city. But yeah, more cool stuff, I think, is on the way here. But Agni is definitely one of those things. And Jared's doing amazing things over there, too, as well. So you can follow him on Instagram at... Krauss.jared, so K R A U S S. Jared is his handle. You can also follow the restaurant, Agni. It's at Dine at Agni. Reservations for them are on talk too as well. The bar, you don't need reservations. You can just kind of walk in. I think we went early on a Saturday. We were before seven and it was pretty much wide open. So it just kind of depends on what's going on in the city, but you might be able to just kind of walk in uh, if you're just looking for the bar area and just want to pull some small bites and stuff like that and have a drink or two. But you definitely need reservations for the chef's counter in the back, which they do. And then also, um, you know, the taste menu and everything uh, too as well. So you just go to talk and you can find them there. Make sure to follow us on Instagram too as well at Spoon Mob. You can check out our website, spoonmob.com profiles for all our guests are up there on the website links to all the episodes that they've been on any new information updates since they've been on the podcast too as well we put up their photos of food the restaurant wine all that stuff you can find Uh, there's a contact portal where you can write in questions comments feedback too as well you can also email us directly spoonmob at yahoo.com and just poke around the website it's always getting updated always new things getting added food photos what have you just added some photos from Good Eats uh, here in Columbus, too, as well. So those are up there. And a few other things, too. HereAith, we added, to as well. So eventually, that stuff makes its way to Instagram, but it always hits the website first. So you want to just kind of periodically check in there. As for following the podcast, make sure to do so. We're on all the platforms. Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Samsung, Amazon Music, any podcast platform you can find us. We post links. You can use our Instagram bio. There's a link in there with the link tree. Uh, That'll take you to where you need to go. All the individual episodes, we post links in our stories too as well. Or you can go to the preferred player and just search Spoon Mob and we'll come up. Uh, And then you can click the little check mark follow button and all the new episodes will drop straight into your feed. As soon as they release, usually come out on Thursdays at 1 a.m. Sometimes we have some mini update episodes with returning guests. Those usually drop on Tuesdays. They're just kind of randomly. It's whenever we have them recorded and push them out. That's why you kind of want to be followed so you don't miss anything. And uh, you can check out our YouTube channel too as well. We put all the episodes up there about a week uh, after they debut on the podcast platform. So if YouTube is your preferred player podcast method, you can go ahead and subscribe to our channel there and uh, you'll get alerted as soon as a new episode releases and gets uploaded there too as well. Also, make sure to vote for us for Best Community Partner with the Ohio Restaurant Industry Awards, the Ohio Restaurant Association. They do annual awards. We are up for Best Community Partner, it's one of four finalists, I guess, in that category. Make sure if you get a chance, if you haven't already, to go to uh, their website. Click on the awards voting. It'll give you a little drop down ballot and you go through each of like the five or six categories and select uh, from it's like best restaurants, North, Central, South, uh, best community partner, I think uh, best behind the scenes person. And there's, I think uh, maybe one other category too as well that I'm blanking on is up there. So it's like five or six categories, quick drop down uh, you have through the end of the month to vote. So please do so if you haven't. And if you have, uh, I think you can go vote again if you'd like. I don't think there's a limit or anything like that. But please, uh, if you get a chance, go ahead and vote for us up there. Uh, That'd be cool to see. And um, yeah, that's it for kind of updates. So with that, here is the conversation with sommelier and wine director, Jared Krause, who you can find over at Agni here in Columbus, Ohio. Cool. Well, thanks again for taking some time. Coming on the podcast here to talk about your career, what you're doing now with Agni. I want to get into all that too and and how you wound up there and what you got going on with parents and the uniqueness of the food and everything. But I always like to kind of start at the beginning with everyone. How did you kind of first find yourself getting involved with wine? Was it just something that you kind of fell into or was it a byproduct of working in restaurants in high school? Like how did all that kind of materialize and happen for you?
1: Thanks for having me on the podcast, right? Most sommeliers I've met in my life accidentally ended up in wine. I was going to Ohio State University here in Columbus, needed a part time job for, you know, weekend beer money. So I found myself at a really legacy restaurant here in the city called The Refectory. I think you've talked to a couple Refectory, Taylor, who's the current wine director, and, and Chris Dillman as well. So I'm 19, 20, 21 years old. My weekends are all Ramen and hot dogs and natty light. And then I go into this classic, like temple to French fine dining food. There's foie gras, there's truffles, and there's first growth Bordeaux. When I started there, we had uh, Mouton Rothschild going back to the 50s on the wine list. You know, I just had this fortuitous kind of surrounding. And eventually, as I graduated from college, my original goal was law school, took the LSAT. I got into law schools, but then just right at the, the 11th hour decided it wasn't for me. And I, I felt a little bit lost and just stayed in the hospitality industry over the course of a decade. And you know, sometimes it was part-time, sometimes it was full-time. I was playing around with different careers, but I went from bussing tables at the refectory when I was 19 years old to being the wine director there. I think I was 28 when I became the wine director.
0: It's funny because we've had a bunch of people on That have gone to either medical school or law school and just as soon as they get there they're like i don't really want to do this so for you was there a singular moment that you're like this is not the path that i want to continue down
1: it's funny i have two sommeliers that work with me right now at agni and both of them also intended to go to law school got their undergrad and then changed course and now you know years later are doing wine you know i spent my last i think two summers of uh doing uh, document processing, like clerk jobs, basically, at some law firms here in Columbus. And it just was not the fit for me. The environment of a larger law firm, especially coming from restaurants where it's so... Even a a place as polished as like a fine dining restaurant. You go behind the scenes. It's very casual. It's almost like you're hanging out with friends. You're getting drinks after work. And then you go to a law firm environment and it's very polished. And I, I remember clearly my first day at one of the law firms... As I was being walked around the office, introduced to every single handshake was that classic, like, dick measuring contest handshake where they're trying to, like, crush your hand. And I realized that, you know, the first one was like, oh, okay, this guy, that's just how he asserts dominance. But then it was like 12 in a row, men and women, every single handshake. And I realized that was just the culture there and that that was not for me at all.
0: So when you're in school, you wind up working at the refractory, like you mentioned. How did you wind up there? Was that just they were hiring somebody
1: and you were like, all right, I need a job? Yeah. Um, you know, this was 2007 when I started there. So it's definitely before a lot of the job board postings that you could kind of search nowadays. I want to say I saw an ad in print in a newspaper, like either the Dispatch, or maybe it was the OSU student newspaper, the Lantern. I don't 100% remember, but I'm pretty sure it was a actual in print job posting in a newspaper somewhere. And I just responded to it and interviewed. And I I still remember Kamal, who's the the owner of the refectory for I think like 40 years now. He asked me a question about something about how I what I didn't like about service, and I'd done casual restaurant jobs before and i just gave the worst possible answer i mean i I went off for like just rambling like seven minute long here's what i get annoyed about at service and in retrospect i always think like why would you have hired me like i sounded like someone who just hated working in restaurants but it ended up working out i guess you're
0: at the refectory for a number of years it was a decade that's not normal for people to to be at one restaurant that long, especially starting so early in your, in your career, in your wine journey. How did that happen? Was it just like, this is a great place to be, a great environment, like there's no reason to even look at other opportunities because they just don't compare?
1: I, it was some of that, and honestly, the refectory, there were people, a, a gentleman just Passed away a couple of weeks, actually, who was one of my sort of like early mentors. His name was John Saunders, and he worked at the refectory for I think 41 years. And there's people that I worked with that started around the same time I did or a couple of years after that are still there today. Um, so there's definitely a tradition of people being at that restaurant for longer than most restaurants are open. There's the community of it, I think, because you do have that established. A core of people working. That's just an attractive thing to be a part of. At the time in the early 2010s, late aughts, the restaurant scene in Columbus, there weren't a lot of other comparable high-end things going on. And I found out that that was really what I enjoyed. I didn't want to go back to some sort of casual restaurant. I'd worked at like you Oak Charlie's and Olive Garden before, and that was not my vibe. and then w- once I started getting into wine, you know there was nowhere else. There was nowhere else in the city that afforded the same sort of opportunities with wine that I had there.
0: so what was it that like hooked you in wine, you know, because you wind up at the refectory? Were you into wine before that, or was it that kind of like a byproduct of being there?
1: Definitely a byproduct of being there. I was into beer actually, so we had a a general manager slash wine director. His name was Jeff Alaski. And he admittedly did not know much about beer, and so when I was 21, maybe 22, he turned over the beer program to me at the ref because I was just really into it. I'd grown up in Portland, Oregon, which is obviously a large craft beer city, uh, and especially again, we're talking 2000, what 2009, 2010, a little bit before the craft beer boom really blows up around the country, but there were pockets of it in Portland and a couple of up in Michigan, obviously. Uh, So I came from one of those. I fell in love with beer and that was my intro into beverage at the refectory. And then as I was continuing sort of curating the the beer selection there, I had goals of becoming a, a server. And at the time there was no sommelier, all servers handled their own wine service in their sections. And if you have, you know, whatever, 500 selections in a wine list and you're expected to handle your own wine service, the knowledge that was expected of the service staff there was pretty high. So when I came to Jeff and said, I want to serve, he said, okay, cool. You don't know anything about wine, so you can't, but let's get you there. Let's see what we can do to to build up your knowledge and get to a point where I'm comfortable having you have those wine interactions with guests. So he started inviting me to taste with uh, sales reps when they came into the restaurant. He started sending me to all of the trade tastings around the city, gave me a couple of books to read. And I think over the course of about a year, I started like really gaining a strong level of knowledge of, of wine and just exposure to all of that. And then I distinctly remember a rep coming in to taste the new vintage of Jean-Marc Marc Bricard Chablis. And he brought the whole lineup up to their uh, Grand Cru Le Clos vineyard. And we're tasting through from Village level Chablis all the way up. And in my mind, I'm like, okay, Village Chablis. It's nice. It's enjoyable. Premier Cru. Oh, this is pretty good. And then we tasted the Grand Cru. And I was like, holy shit. Like wine is awesome. Like it, it clicked in my mind. That was really the start
0: you're there for a number of years did you get to a point where you wanted to work your way up and like you said you wanted to become a server but from there like when you once you're on the floor like did you want to become a wine director there one day like was that an ultimate goal or is that just something that just kind of happened
1: it really happened it was you know in the midst of my 20s I was like I think a lot of people just searching for what was the right fit for me and tried a couple of different things like I said for some time I was Part time at the refectory, serving as I like. I worked for Big Brothers Big Sisters within Columbus City Schools for a while. Went through like the the firefighter like hiring process. I I was just like jumping around, experimenting with stuff, and nothing ever stuck. The whole time, I just kept learning more about wine. I kept tasting more great wine. You know, eventually, I can't remember the timeline, but I had decided that wine was really like my passion, and I did want to pursue it. And then. Jeff, the, the wine director, uh, became very ill and had to step down from his role pretty abruptly. And we were just in a, a place staffing wise at the, the restaurant where Kamal approached me and said, I know you don't have any management experience, but you have the respect of everyone on the team here and we're willing to help you sort of learn the ropes of what running the wine program would be like. And so offered me the, um, the position had actually never wanted really to be a restaurant manager. I think, you know, when you're in your 20s and you think about managing restaurants, it, I, some people love it. Some people dive into it right away, but it's, there's always this idea of like, ah, oh, I just I don't want to manage. I know how tough all of our service staff make it on the management team, and I don't want that. But at that point I'd been there 8 years, you know, I'd gone from a teenager to, you know, to my late 20s and it really felt like a place I had grown up in the within those walls and and I was pretty much family with team there so uh since there was definitely it was it was sort of like an emergency time so I I took that opportunity and then you know from there once you're the wine director of a place like that the opportunities to learn more about wine to taste more wine just explode during that time that process are you taking any wine exams and certifications or does that come later later yeah I was already running the wine program for maybe a year or so before I took the for quartermaster sommelier's sommeliers um, intro sommelier test. And I just sort of, I felt like uh, maybe I should, you know, obviously he, um, has, I worked with him on and off at the refectory. And so I saw his uh, path to testing for master sommelier over the years and I, I never really did it. But once I was in that role, I thought maybe, I don't know, maybe it would, give me a little more credibility because I was pretty young. I was still in my twenties. And so I, I took the intro exam. Yeah. About a year after I, I started running the wine program.
0: Why did you decide on the court versus one of the other organizations, either WSET or SWE? Like what kind of led you down that path?
1: Um, I think it's probably the influence from Chris and just seeing the amount of work that he put into studying for the exams and how much knowledge he had sort of accumulated going down that path. Also, obviously in restaurants, the service element that the court focuses on, it made more sense to have that as a part of it versus, yeah, like the W set, which doesn't have that. And then two, there was the the structure of it. I don't really like school. I never, sitting in class is not my thing. So the chance to do a thing where I could just show up and take a test and I didn't have to versus the W set where it's, you know, in-person classes, uh, I guess post COVID they've done a lot of uh, online classes now. Uh, It just really appealed to me to be like, okay, I put on, put in the work on my own time. I do the grind. I don't need to be in a classroom and sit down and do this formal thing. And then I can show up and and take this test.
0: So when you take like the next level, like, was there a part that was, more difficult or challenging for you out of the three, you know, service, tasting, theory, like were there one of those
1: three that you felt you had to focus extra more on? Yeah, t- tasting's always been uh, the weak point of the three for me. I don't think I'm a natural taster. You know, I've I've gotten to the point where well, I'm a really good blind taster, but it took just grinding and grinding and grinding, and um, it's by no means natural for me, but theory and service service because I did the job it came very easily and theory you know I think a big part of beyond tasting that that bottle that really hooked me what one of the things that hooked me into sort of as a long-term thing was the opportunity to study every different field of I don't know everything uh, to really understand it you know there's all the hard sciences physics, chemistry, geology, meteorology, etc. there's the social sciences, economics and history and you know all, all of that. And so to branching down all those paths through the world of wine was super attractive to me. And as I was doing that, it turned out I was picking up all of the the bits and pieces that would then translate to like a CMS theory exam.
0: Was there a region that was
1: especially challenging for you? Italy, certain part of France? Germany, I think Germany's always been a challenge and it's partially because I just almost paradoxically, I just like all of the wine. I like almost everything that comes out of Germany. So it almost feels like what's the point of studying? Like I don't need to learn the different vineyards. All the vineyards are great. All of the Riesling is great. Every Pradecott level is great. So it almost made it harder because I just love all of it.
0: So like 2017, you wind up going out West for a harvest intern at, uh, Martinelli Vineyard. So, what led to that? Was winemaking something that you thought maybe this will be another path
1: that I'll get into and and go down? I I was definitely considering winemaking as um, kind of the next step of my career. My wife had just finished up her master's program in Ohio, and we were just sort of looking to make a move, leave Ohio. And so, I was weighing options. Should I go to school, pursue? a viticulture and enology degree. If I did that, where would we move to? And then she was trying to figure out fellowship opportunities at the same time. And eventually we just landed on the Bay Area, made the most sense for us. And like I already said, I'm not a big fan of school. So instead of going back to school, I thought, why don't I just do the job and see what I could learn about winemaking that way?
0: I'm assuming you went through the whole thing since you were there, I think from like August to February. So picking, processing, crushing, bottling, all that stuff. Was there a part of that that you enjoyed the most?
1: Honestly, the the harvest. I really enjoyed almost all of it. Even most winemaking is cleaning. Ninety ninety percent of it probably is just cleaning, and 10 percent of it's using the equipment that you cleaned and then cleaning it again. So obviously that can get a little bit mundane. But the everything about the harvest was really enjoyable. Getting the fruit in, tasting it, kind of processing it, putting it into the fermenters. We did inoculated ferments at Martinelli, like most people do throughout California. So I got to build up the yeast starters and then start our fermentations and also work on like the uh, malactic bacteria starters and, and secondary fermentations. Just all of that and the learning experience of it, having spent a decade serving people the wine, selling it, and then having the opportunity to see it on that end, I just really, really enjoyed. Not the hours. The hours are pretty brutal.
0: Is winemaking still something that you could envision yourself doing one day, you know, after leaving restaurants, or is that time come and gone and
1: and you've had your fill of winemaking and yeah, I don't I don't know. There's a couple of, of sort of barriers to entry, I think. One is just like if you're going to do your own thing, the finances you need to start up a winery, unless you're buying just really obscure varieties from you know, the Central Valley, California or something like that. But even then you have to invest in, in like, you know, your fermentation tanks, you have to, all of that. So there, there's definitely a financial barrier to starting my own thing and then working under someone else. Maybe since I just started like a little bit older into the the game, instead of like getting a viticulture and analogy degree and jumping into it in my early twenties, you know, I was making $15 an hour working for Martinelli. Which it was about the going rate in Sonoma in twenty seventeen. Sonoma is a really expensive place to live and fifteen dollars an hour does not pay the bills. And and so I think there's that sort of barrier to entry of like trying to grind and work your way up from the bottom, sort of you know, at my age and experience level. So I'm not I wouldn't say no, I don't want to do it, but there's definitely it, it would have to be things that fall into place. And especially now being back in the Midwest there's fewer opportunities to source super cool grapes. So after you do harvest, you wind up staying on the West
0: coast, right? And you join Gary Danko as a sommelier. So was that intentional? You guys just wanted to stay out there. you were already kind of there or what led to all that?
1: My wife had just finished up her master's degree and she was doing a fellowship in San Francisco and the wine production, especially when you stop getting the overtime hours during harvest, uh, was not paying the bills. And so I thought, well, I've got the skill set of working in restaurants. I know I could make pretty good money doing that. And it would be fun to find a place that would, would let me open up like unbelievable wine regularly, you know, go work at a Michelin star restaurant and see what that is all about. So, yeah, we, we had always intended to stay out on the West Coast for a while uh, once we. Uh, moved out there. I had originally thought I would stay in production longer than I did. No regrets joining the team at Gary Danko.
0: Yeah, I mean, we've had a decent amount of people who are Somalis who've all spent time there. Is that just because like ownership, management, they're just super open in terms of people with little or, you know, no experience, but like as long as you have a desire to learn, they're willing to kind of bring you in and and join the team kind of thing because they just seem... more willing to bring people on than other restaurants in that area, I guess.
1: Gary Denko, they know who they are and what they're trying to do and what their standards are, and they are very methodical about maintaining those standards. Which means, you know, what in practice what that means. So I got hired on to be a sommelier, and, and that came through multiple rounds of interviews. Their wine director, uh, Jeremiah Morehouse, he's no longer with them, but he was a master sommelier at the time. And so you know, I spent time meeting with him, talking to him about wine theory. I think he gave me an actual written quiz, or maybe it was oral, uh, but of like wine theory stuff. So he was definitely vetting this guy from Ohio. Does he actually know what he's talking about here? But from there, once, once you pass the multiple rounds of interviews, it doesn't matter what position you got hired on to do at Gary Danko's, the front of the house, even if you're the restaurant manager, you start running food. And you don't stop running food until you're perfect at it. And then you back wait and you don't stop back waiting until you're perfect at it. And then you can, you know, then you can bartend, you can be a captain, you can be a a sommelier, you can be a manager. So I, I think the system of it allows them to maybe roll the dice on people that maybe other restaurants wouldn't, you know, if you were going to be hired straight on, you know, First day of training, you're a floor sommelier of a Michelin star restaurant in San Francisco. They need to know you have the pedigree to back that up. But a place like Gary Danko, no one's ever going to be in that position. And so if they feel pretty good about you, they can hire you and have you prove yourself.
0: How different was it between working at Gary Danko in the refractory? Because You had the refectory for so long. Like what were the big contrasts between the
1: two? There was a lot in common, honestly. I think Gary Dinko had the resources to execute the stuff that we all sort of wished we were doing at the refectory. I mean, just in the money involved, the staffing involved to to sort of every single interaction with tables meeting the standards that are set in stone of the restaurant. That's a thing anywhere could do if you pour the resources into it, if you hire... Enough people to cover all of the gaps if you have all of the right equipment and, you know, kind of all of those elements. And that's a a tough thing for most restaurants to pour those resources into in that way. But Gary Danko was able to do that. And so the nuts and bolts of the job were largely similar, uh, but it it was just having that opportunity to execute just constantly.
0: So then you wind up, I think, doing some wine education, right, for Robert Mondavi. So what led to you wanting to explore kind of the education side of things? Was it just that's the kind of the last part of it? Like you've worked in restaurants and you've done the Michelin thing and you did the winemaking, but there's this education component out there that you hadn't touched on?
1: That was a big part of it, definitely. The biggest thing, honestly, was just more family time. The job with uh, Robert Mandavi was largely, you know, nine to five hours. Restaurants are obviously the, the opposite there. the That was what. I guess spurred me looking for a position like that. The opportunity with Mandavi was honestly just amazing. The goal of the brand was to sort of reinvigorate itself and reestablish itself as one of the premium wineries in Napa Valley. And I think over the years, the name Robert Mandavi, you know, in the 80s, Robert Mandavi was the most important winery probably in the world. 40 years later, the brand as a whole had been diluted by you know Robert Mondavi private selection and woodbridge by Robert Mondavi which are hugely successful brands and make a lot of money for the company but it it sort of puts the idea in people's mind that it's not a high end luxury winery they were looking to really start the process of combating that perception and so they wanted to bring someone on the team who had very high end you know michelin star type experience And a broad view of the the wider world of high end wine. The majority of my job was to train our staff internally, wine things, whatever you know, wine education for internal staff, and to help push the direction of the sort of the hospitality offerings we were giving at the winery in a more luxury realm. Robert Mondavi, like you said, in the eighties, synonymous with you know
0: prestige high end wine. Even now, I think probably, you know, because there's so many labels that the name's associated with, it doesn't feel prestigious, right? There's too many different lines. And aside from obviously the, I think everybody would first conclusion would be, we'll just get rid of some of the labels, but that affects your financials. And that's not something that anybody's really going to sign off on, right? So how do you do that? How do you inject that prestigious level of excitement back into? a winery that's fallen flat on like the next
1: generation. That's a question. If if it was easy to answer, uh, Constellation Brands would rehire me for about half a million dollars a year. What we were looking at was like multifaceted elements of sort of relaunching the brand. Um, like for instance, right now they've moved their tasting room to downtown Napa from the winery in Oakville. I mean, this literally happened, I think last week where th- there was an old bank out just outside of downtown Napa that uh, Stone Brewery had opened a, a brew pub in several years ago, and they vacated the space during the pandemic. Uh, mandavi just took over that space, and for the next maybe year or two, I'm not 100% sure on the timeline, they will be doing tastings out of there as they do really massive renovations to the winery in Oakville. So I think that's, that's one stage, right? Like, the winery is pretty iconic. If you visited Napa Valley, it's one of the like major stops for a lot of people, and so it'll be interesting to see what they do with the famous sort of arch and tower out front. But it's also a very dated space because it was built in, in 1964. So there's that. Um, you know, they sort of some of the the marketing things they they redid the labels, which was an interesting process to be a part of because the first round of labels, I think about. Anchor Steam, which sadly has just shut down legendary brewery in San Francisco. They were bought by Sapporo a few years ago and they redid their labels and it looked exactly like the twisted tea, like cheap twisted tea can label. Terrible, terrible rebranding. And I feel like the first round of Designs we saw for the new Mandavi label was sort of in that direction. And there was a lot of pushback from people that had been working with the winery since back when the Mandavi family owned it. Tons of credit to Constellation Brands, where they took that feedback and they reimagined what they were doing and went back to the artists that had made a lot of the original labels uh, for Mandavi, like in the 90s. I think the same artist that had done the Opus One labels back in the 80s and did a More modern label that also still had elements of like prestige and classic, you know, harkening back to the history of the winery. So there's all of those like larger in the market elements. My piece of this giant puzzle was what are we doing for hospitality offerings? Because if you're marketing yourself as a luxury winery throughout the world and you want to sell people $300 bottles of, Tocolon Cabernet Sauvignon, when they come visit your winery, that is a little bit incongruous to what the Mandavi winery had been for a long time, where people would show up with families and buy a $15 bottle of Moscato from the retail shop and sit out on the lawn and drink this Moscato and have a lovely time. But that's just not what people... If I'm showing up to a winery, think I'm going to have this very luxury experience and I see that, I'm probably going to leave and go to another winery that fits more of sort of what i'm i'm looking for we spent a lot of time talking about what that meant in terms of the offerings we were going to have for guests at the winery um, training the staff to deliver those a more luxury experience you know we got a budget to buy a bunch of luxury wine and taste it with the staff like a shockingly generous budget to do that just so they could understand like, here's what first growth Bordeaux tastes like next to our Cabernet Sauvignon. Here's, we did a tasting where we did maybe 10 different wines from the Tocolon vineyard alongside our our wine from Tocolon. And here's what those all taste side by side. So you can then have those conversations with customers who are probably that level of, of knowledgeable, if you know, and then COVID happened and all of our plans for hospitality uh, just went up in flames anyway.
0: Or around this time too you're doing the education stuff but you're in to you participate in the wines of austria Somalia cup competition so what made you want to do that not just you know participate in a Somalia competition but one that was specific to a certain region certain
1: country when you are in the sommelier culture in a place like San Francisco that's just sort of what you do honestly um you know there's there's all these opportunities of you know i i did the the ruinart challenge um i think a couple of times too where you show up in blind taste for wines and then sit in a seminar from the the winemaker from ruinart champagne and if you win you get a trip out to champagne france and so those sorts of things just kind of pop up. They happen pretty frequently, largely in large markets, especially wine-centric markets, San Francisco, New York, Chicago, LA, Vegas. If your goal is to pass the master sommelier exam, which is like sort of everyone's goal who's summing in San Francisco, even they might not say it. They might They might give up on that eventually and realize you don't need to take the test and I can just do this job. But at a certain point you get, you're in this culture and you're like, all right, we're all studying together. We're all tasting together. Oh, look, here's this competition for Austria. Now let's sign up for that. You know, I had probably eight friends also doing it. And here's an, here's an opportunity to spend the next two months studying just Austria. And when we're done with that, feel like we could pass the master Psalm level of theory on Austria and taste a bunch of Austrian wine and get better at that, even if they're non CMS testable, um, grapes. Um, so, so I think that, that was really just, it is, is the the culture of it kind of drives you to take part in these things. And if you're already studying and you are already going to go over this stuff in that level of detail, eventually, why not see if you could win a trip to Austria while you're doing it?
0: So what was the general format? Every city is a different region and then whoever kind of wins that region collectively moves on to next level thing
1: or It sort of depends which which competition we're talking about. That one was specifically Austria. So they I think there was a written theory exam only on Austria like kind of all of Austria and then there was a blind tasting portion of it that was I think it was four wines and you blind tasted and you wrote down your notes. On the wines and then when you were graded on that the top three competitors went on to a mock a mock service which again so it was all it was built like the quartermaster sommeliers exam except everything was austria so same thing for when you did the ruin art stuff too was it the same kind of format that one was only blind tasting uh so the ruin art does it every year i think they do maybe like four or five cities yeah, show up and it's four wines. It's not necessarily the wines that you would expect if you were taking an examination. Um, one of my former colleagues at Gary Denko won the Ruinart uh, Challenge maybe twenty twenty sixteen, And he told me that all four wines were rosés. You have to just blind t- taste four rosés. Good luck. And so, yeah, they do that every year and just kind of rotate through what wines they're pouring for people and then they take a group of people to champagne whoever did the best in their respective cities and there's there's so many of these sorts of competitions there's there's a like best young sommelier competition you have to be under 30 to compete in it that tends to be like a country wide thing it's like a regional and then you you know if you win your region, you compete nationally, and then if you win your country, you can go over to Europe and compete, and then there's a version of that that isn't age-restricted, and you know there's all kinds of them.
0: I had uh, Jaden Paul on from Vancouver, and he's participating in one that it was regional, he won it, and then it becomes national all across Canada, and people come out of the different regions, but the little thing is that You have to do it in a different language. So he's having to learn French so he can participate in the national like best sommelier of Canada competition right now.
1: I think that one feeds into a worldwide competition because I had a friend in Portland do that maybe two years ago. And yeah, I think he he picked French also. And so he was like boning up on his French to be able to compete in this exam. I think it puts Americans in particular at a disadvantage because if you're a European sommelier competing in this, odds are you speak a couple of languages anyway. You know, I guess if you're Western Canadian, you're only speaking English. Maybe if you're Eastern Canadian, you already speak a little French. Yeah, that's
0: what he said. Like most of the people that have ever won this have been from like Montreal or Toronto, like because they just already know the dual languages. So it's like not even a thing for them. So it's like it's pretty advantageous to be from that side of the the country but so for you you know what happens when the pandemic happens you you guys are out on the west coast everything
1: shuts down i was really fortunate that several months before the pandemic i had left restaurants and gone to work at mandavi so the restaurant shut down didn't directly impact me and you know why tasting rooms at wineries were shut down. I was in a leadership role, so I was still working from home anyway. Uh, but have to give Constellation Brands all of the credit in the world because they didn't lay off or furlough any employees across the entire business. They paid everyone the entire time we were shut down. It, for their employees in tasting rooms that declared tips, they averaged out something like six months worth of tips and added that amount you know, paraded it and added it to their paychecks. They just fully paid their entire staff, which then when we reopened our tasting room, we were good. We didn't need to hire anyone unlike everyone else in Napa Valley that laid off their staff and then had to frantically hire. Everything sort of pivoted while we were shut down. California was shut down significantly longer than Ohio was, for instance. We were doing things to keep our staff engaged. I think it was twice weekly. We were doing wine education programs for the staff. Things took the opportunity to deep dive into th- subjects that would have been difficult to do during operations. You know, I, I did a presentation on French versus American oak. So it was just like two hours of talking to people about why these two kinds of oak are different. Uh, that would never happen. If we weren't shut down and stuck at home, and so you know, we did the same thing with grape genetics and um, and microbiology, and I can't even remember all the, the topics now. The history of Tokala and make sure remind everyone why it was so special, and then I, I also did more um, kind of like front-facing video things for the winery where we interviewed. Our winemaking team, on like a live video, so people could learn more about winemaking. Or sometimes I leveraged my uh, connections in the sommelier world, brought some master sommeliers on to talk about why the history of Mandavi matters, and that that tied into the idea of kind of re-luxuryifying the brand of let's see if we can get some MSs who are bored and stuck at home to talk about why Mandavi matters to the larger world of wine. So we still kind of pushing elements of that agenda. And then obviously, once we started to reopen, trying to redo everything that we had ever known about hospitality at the winery and, and do it all outdoors, change up everything we were doing. So it was a shockingly busy time considering I was at home the whole time and not used to working at home.
0: So is that where the podcast came from? Was that a component of that or was that a passion project, something that you wanted to do?
1: Yeah, I think it was just being stuck at home. I need a thing to do, you know. Even though I was still working, once I started doing a lot of the videos and and recording, I became a lot more comfortable with the concept. And you know, I was interviewing people for these Instagram lives. I thought it'd be fun to do a longer format conversation with some people. Is it something that you felt it was going
0: to have a, a timeline of it, of just do x amount of episodes, or was it just something that? you wound up losing free time. So it was kind of harder to, to continue to do.
1: Yeah. I had a son actually. Um, I started the podcast during the lockdowns, like early 2020. And then my son was born October, 2020. And that really, you know, had to start prioritizing what I was spending my, my time on. And you know, the podcast was kind of a fun hobby, but ultimately it was no longer where I was going to allocate a lot of my time. Something that you'll consider bringing back eventually or time and place? Yeah, I don't think so. I don't it, it's fun to do. It's definitely fun to like have these conversations with people and and sort of like get to learn about people and and learn more more details of the industry and and all that. But I I don't think that that is again, now that I am older, have have a family, you know, doing some things in in the restaurant group that I'm with now, just trying to allocate my my time as a resource efficiently. You wind up taking a wine sales rep position
0: right at Skrnick uh, for a little bit was that just needed or wanted a, a job to be doing something or was, did you want to explore the side of wine
1: sales because you had never touched on that? My family ended up moving back to Columbus and that's where I worked with Skrnick is here in Ohio and you know we we moved back to Columbus sort of for for family reasons largely around having a son. Fun fact: childcare in uh, San Rafael where we were living during the pandemic. Uh, We were quoted uh, $3,500 a month. So we live back in Ohio.
0: I haven't seen them in a while, but there'd be every once in a while. If you're on TikTok, there's some people that would create some videos and they're like basically clipping together, asking people like, how much do you pay for childcare where you live? You know, Boston, New York, and just some of the answers you get, you're just like, that's that's
1: insane. It's already crazy expensive to live out there, obviously. And we were in a place where like, all right, maybe one day. Not anytime soon. Give us like seven to 10 years, we could buy a house. We were looking at like Petaluma, maybe buy a house for like $800,000 or something, just aggressively save money. But then we saw the bill for childcare and we're like, so that's all of our money. Like we can't save anything. We're literally never going to own a house living out here or go on vacation or, you know, whatever. It's just like all of the extra money has to go to that. You combine that with, you know what, almost like two full years of like San Francisco dining being shut down and the constant fires. We didn't even talk about the fires. The fires suck to live through. So, yeah, we, we moved back to Columbus, just easier place at least to raise a family. And then, yeah, I took the job at Skrnick because it, it was something, it was like the last vestige of the industry that I hadn't done before. It's like, and Skrnick has an unbelievable portfolio also. So, that played into it too. Um, coming from place where I had all of the great wines of the world at my fingertips and then moving back to Ohio I still wanted to be in a space where where I got to play around with those great wines Would you take a, a wine sales job like that
0: do they give you kind of an established region book of business or are you building everything from scratch like how does that work
1: it totally depends on the business uh, skernick at the time they only had one sales rep in all of Columbus which is too many accounts for one person so when i came on board they kind of peeled off a couple of accounts from the other rep in the city and gave them to me and then so my job was here's the whatever the number was here's 15 accounts to service and then go prospect new accounts um there's some sometimes depending on the scenario you know had say there were two reps in Columbus and one of them left the company then they would be looking to hire someone to move into that established route and take all of it over. Uh, sometimes they'll hire you solely to prospect new accounts. It all just kind of depends on what the, bus- the the particular sort of business is doing at the time. So when you're in that
0: role, how hard is it to try and get Columbus restaurants, Columbus wine directors to try something different than what their usual order is? Like Columbus has grown a lot as a, as a restaurant and, and food city and, and everything, but there is still a solid chunk that is, you know, and, and we've talked about it with numerous guests, but I won't go over X amount of dollars for this item. I like this item. This is the item I want. Don't change that item. Why did you change the menu? That's you took away this thing that was, it's never here anymore. Like, so how do you approach that knowing that there is this element of, stuck in the mud consumers that that don't want to change they like what they like and that's what they want when they go out in their free time to also try and get new products or new wine into those establishments
1: to be to be totally honest with you I don't think I'm very good at that I think that's largely why I'm not in sales anymore um you know I had a handful of buyers that I worked with that really did want to like get a new product and, and educate their guests and kind of push what we were doing with wine in Columbus and I love those people and I probably spent way too much of my time talking to them because it, it felt like a like an outlet, you know That's when I met actually um, Taylor the at the refectory now you know when I moved out to California that was years before he came on board at the, the restaurant. So when I came back, I took over that account and I met Taylor became friends with him there. Just because he would buy all the cool stuff that we had in our book, and so it was fun to kind of bring that up to him. A lot of my accounts or my prospective accounts did have a lot of pushback um, because they had a lot of those those clients who wanted what they wanted, and it wasn't worth the effort from the business to try and break them out of that. You know, just bring in the product you know you can sell and, and get it to them, and. You know, I I found that incredibly frustrating to deal with personally. You know, nothing against the buyers; they're just trying to do their job and run a profitable wine program, uh, be it retail or restaurants or whatever. But you know, I, I like I said, I had the entire world of wine at my fingertips in the Bay Area, and then I came back to Columbus and. There's this tiny corner of the world of wine that would sell very well and very easily. And everything else just felt like I was, you know, hitting my head against a wall of bricks. And clearly, there are sales reps in Columbus who do this successfully. I'm grateful to them, but that is is not my skill set, unfortunately, for my time at Skernick. So how did you wind up
0: at Agni and joining Avishar and his restaurant group?
1: I heard they were opening. I was looking around for opportunities and I emailed Avishar's other restaurant, Joya's, and said, hey, I think you guys are opening this other restaurant soon and I'd be interested in having a conversation and doing cool beverage stuff with you. And the person who answered who was answering the emails at Joya's is this woman, uh, Nicole Vanderdoze, who um, had been a sales rep for Cavalier Distributing. Here in Ohio. And I had met her when I was at the refectory. Um, when I was buying, she called on me as a rep. And so she passed my information on to the Agni team and said, Hey, this guy actually knows what he's talking about with wine. You should really sit down and have a conversation with him. Super grateful to Nicole for, for the introduction there and not just taking my email for, you know, random crazy person off the street. Once I started having the conversations with Avishar and his team, it became pretty clear that they wanted to do something pretty special at Agni. And um, I wanted to be a part of that. And And they liked my vision for what we could do with, uh, with beverage.
0: I wouldn't say that there's a centralized theme to Avishar's food. Maybe you could say, you know, Bengali because of his heritage and everything, but it's kind of all over the place in a good way. It still works as a theme. I mean, they have a tasty menu there at Agni and it, it still flows nicely. So, but with that, how much of a challenge is it to pair wine with a cuisine that doesn't fit your prototypical category or box? Like it, it I don't even know what you would compare it to necessarily. I mean, you know, even your fine dining Indian restaurants in Chicago, New York city or whatever, it's not in those categories, but it's not in fast casual either. It's kind of its own pretty unique thing. So like how hard is it to, to go about creating, you know, a pairing list or a wine list that pairs well with a lot of the food.
1: Like our our current menu right now, we have influences obviously uh, from Bangladesh. We have influences from American fast food, from Oaxaca, from Peru, from Vietnam, from Sichuan. So it's definitely not, I agree with you, like, sort of, like, there's definitely a thread of Bengali flavors through the whole thing, but there is nothing traditional or no box you could put the food in um, for what we do at at the restaurant. And at the refectory and at Gary Denko, you know, the refectory was 100% French food. Gary Denko was, you know, California cuisine, which is basically french food with some japanese flavors and local california produce so definitely like way outside of the realm of what i professionally had done before like i would mentioned i grew up um, mostly outside of portland oregon and spent time living you know obviously in california so outside of work i probably eat south and southeast asian food more than any other you know Geographical location of, of food flavors, because um, those are kind of, it's easy to do that, let's say, on the West Coast, if, if that's the kind of food that you enjoy, the options are out there. So I was pretty familiar with the flavor profiles coming into the job, just on a, a personal level. So I had a rough idea of what way I wanted to go for things, but it, it definitely has been a challenge. It's not. There's no book. There's no reference guide. I can't just go if I'm stuck on something. I can't Google. Hey, what pairs with egg chot and unsan egg and you know Ohio maple yogurt sauce with pickled asparagus stems? Like no one else is making that dish. There's no. There's no map to follow. But that does. It makes it fun. You know. I think after what I've been in the wine industry in fine dining or wine production or education for like 20 years now. And to stay engaged and stay excited about it, having a menu like Avishar's and and the team at Ogni's helps me helps me keep that excitement where I I'm not going through the motions because if I tried to go through the motions, I'd give someone a terrible pairing. Um, it takes engagement on on a day to day basis and trying to hunt down the right unique wines to go alongside the menu.
0: I've noticed with pairings, it's not the traditional thing that you think would work that works best. So, like Mexican cuisine, like it's ironic that there's a lot of wines that aren't from Mexico that would work best with Mexican cuisine, and and but some of it still works. You know, French food, French wine, you can have the kind of classic pairing, but. Is that kind of similar? You know, which one does it kind of skew more towards for Agnes cuisine and the pairings that you come up with? Is it, is it usually kind of the wines that you wouldn't expect would work best with the cuisine or is it, you find, you know, like French wines wind up working best because of whatever versus you would think maybe like Austrian wines would work better.
1: Yeah. There's that idea. What grows together, goes together, right? I've never subscribed to that. Uh, Like I said, I, one of the things I love about wine is the opportunity to study history, and so like I'm real, spent a lot of time reading up on the history of wine. For most of the history of cuisine and wine together, nothing was intentional about it. There, it wasn't like an intentional pairing. You just grew wine and you drank it. You grew food and you ate it. And that just was, was what was happening in the area. It wasn't two thousand years ago. No one was. Actually, that's a lot. 2,000 years ago was at the height of the Roman Empire. So they actually were doing this called 1,000 years ago. No one was thinking about food and wine pairings together, especially because wine pre the theory of microbiology, wine would only be good for like four or five months. And then the next four or five months, it would taste like vinegar and you would still drink it because it was the only thing you had on hand. And then you would load up again in the next year. So the idea that what grows together, goes together has never made sense to me because the grapes have been there and the food ha- product has been there for so long. It predates any concept that we should have these things together, which I think having that as my mindset is probably helpful because there, like you said, it's I can't just pull out Bengali wine or Vietnamese wine um, for my pairings. And there has been a lot of unexpected things popping up. Our kind of our final savory dish on the menu is a a duck dish. That's, you know, it's like everything you could have from a duck all on one plate. And in the world of French food, when you think about pairing with duck, immediately start with burgundy. Like that's the go-to have some Pinot Noir with this duck. And then maybe you can go from there. And maybe if it's a richer duck dish, you'll go into like a Grenache or something like that. But as I that was the the hardest dish from our menu for me to figure out what to pair with it. Like I tried all these different things, it wasn't quite working. And what I eventually landed on that worked really well was a super fruit forward Napa Cab, which, you know, that was like option 15 of what I was trying with the duck to try and nail down this pairing. But once I I had it and I saw the way that the flavors and the texture of the wine and the the spice of the dish were all working together, then it opened up. You know, the, the whole Rolodex in my mind of all these wines I've experienced opens up of all right, if Napa Cab works for these reasons, now neuf to Pop can work for a similar reason, or Australian Shiraz can work if we're finding the right wines. So I, I think there it's been a lot of like trial and error of trying to figure out those components of what works. And I think often it is unexpected, but once I'm able to hit on it, a lot of opportunities pop up to pour cool stuff for people.
0: How often does the pairing, does it change as dishes change or does it change just because inventory on something that you're using runs low, you can't get any more. So you got to find something else to kind of swap in.
1: What I've told people is it changes probably irresponsibly often. I, like I said, I, I like to be engaged at work and I like to be excited about things. And so that means cycling through wines and opening up new stuff and seeing how slightly different wine works with a different dish and also having the opportunity personally to just try different wines is opening it up. So I I spend a lot of time trying to source wines that aren't widely available. And that means sometimes I'll only get six bottles of a certain wine in, and then I use those for pairings and they're gone and I need to change uh, to the next wine. There was a night a month ago where I ended up pouring three different wines for the same dish just because of how busy we were how many pairings were ordered how much wine we we ran through over the course of the night so i think there there's a plan of you know like a flow chart of once we go through this we'll move on to this and then move on to the you know wine number 3 um, but it does change really really frequently which also i think if you're a guest and you want to you enjoy wine it can be exciting for you too to you know have dinner with us one month have wine pairings, come back the next month, do wine pairings and I'll pour you seven totally different wines than you got the first time.
0: So for you, like you mentioned when you're out in San Francisco, everybody there is secretly studying for the master, whether they want to admit it or not. Where are you at with exams? Because you've mentioned a couple of times, you know, reaching that point. And we've got a lot of people that talk about it that reach this point where I don't need to do any more exams because I've done enough to know that I can do the job that I want or the... The career path that I want, and getting more certifications isn't going to help me complete that task or, or advance that aspect of my career. So I'm assuming that's kind of where you're at with it too, right? Like you reached kind of a level, and you still want the knowledge and stuff, but maybe going about certifications is not the best way for you to obtain
1: additional knowledge. Honestly, with with the quartermaster sommeliers uh, in October of 2020, there was an article that came out in the New York Times about about like rampant sexual harassment and abuse of power within the Court of Master Psalms. It involved a lot of people that I had met and interacted with in the San Francisco Sommelier community. The court is based in Napa Valley, right? And so that's just kind of the the hub of all of their operations. And I found everything that was in that story to be pretty disgusting. And in protest, I mailed all of my CMS pins and certifications back to the court with a pretty strongly worded letter telling them how I, I felt about the way that kind of everything had been handled. So I uh, definitely am not testing through the court of Master Psalms for further certification. I've taken the W set level three since then, and I've thought about maybe going on and doing like the diploma and maybe the master Wine to follow. That could happen one day. It's, it's in the back of my mind. It is one of those things that is a serious time commitment, though. And like you were saying, I don't think there is benefit to my career in the same way it would have been if I was a bit younger and more kind of in a entry-level kind of wine position. It would almost, I would be doing it just for, I don't know, internal validation, I suppose. And so that's a lot of money and time to spend on something like that. But it's always in the back of my mind. I should I should keep pursuing that. Maybe so one day it could happen.
0: One thing that doesn't get touched on is that it it's really location dependent. I feel like if you are in San Francisco and, and Napa Valley it carries a little more weight because it is a differentiator because there are so many wine programs and, and restaurants there. Where maybe here in Columbus there's not as many. So while it'd be cool if you were, you know, like the only master sommelier or working uh, in restaurants in Columbus, how much of a difference that would make. It's hard to tell. I I guess we won't really know the answer until somebody actually does it. It doesn't feel like it would make a gigantic difference. Aside of maybe like there's a little bit of a bump for like a month because of press or, or something like that,
1: you know? That's likely that, it, that you would see that bump, and that that was sort of be be it like a, a month or two later. And yeah, in, in terms of like career advancement, anywhere you know, any job that there's no job in Columbus where people would take me more seriously about my wine experience because I had the MS letters um, versus like my actual real life work experience. But it is definitely I had passed the certified before I applied to Gary Danko. I never talked to them about this, but I almost guarantee like they would never have called me in for an interview coming from a restaurant no one's ever heard of in Columbus. You know, when if you're in San Francisco, no one knows what the refectory is. So if without that level of certification, I don't think I would have gotten that um that response to my resume. Is there a, a wine region
0: that you kind of gravitate towards? You know, pretty much everybody has one region that for whatever reason, you know, when they started getting into wine, it just that was it that clicked. You mentioned Chablis earlier, but I don't know if that is the region for you or if it was something else.
1: Yeah, it's. I think all all of Burgundy, which um, is easy to say because Burgundy is fantastic. Uh, there's, you know, the saying "All roads lead to Burgundy," but for me, Chablis was that first wine that clicked for me. So I started out in Burgundy and never left. Um, and at, um, at Gary Danko. The opportunity to sell Burgundy was outrageous compared to you know what, what you see in other markets. I think in the 10 years that I worked at the refectory, I sold one bottle of Domaine Romani Conti uh, probably like, a, I think it was a Grand Eschizo or something like that. So one bottle in 10 years, I spent two years at Gary Danko. I sold 24 assorted bottles of Domaine Romani Conti. So averaging about one a month and that's that's just one high end producer you know that doesn't count the Coche Dury, the Le Fleuve, the ramene you know the these high end burgundy producers that aren't even available in ohio frankly and so I, I was already into burgundy it was already you know sort of my favorite region like i i really enjoyed it and i spent a lot of time studying it and then i ended up in a place where i sold and tasted so much great burgundy And now I have the wine taste of a billionaire, unfortunately. Are there any lesser known or underrated grapes that you believe
0: deserve more recognition? Everybody knows Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, and and all the big ones, but there's a lot that are little small, little areas that are grown. Uh, This is the only area that they're grown, or maybe there's five little areas in, in the world that they're grown is there anything that falls into that category that you think people should try more or be drinking more?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So many of them, honestly. I think for a long time, I, I really went down the rabbit hole of Trousseau. I'm I'm a big fan of Trousseau and specifically um, United States West Coast Trousseau. I think that's one of the few grapes I think the U.S. does a like significantly better job with than uh, its native regions in France, and like throughout Sonoma, you can find super cool plantings of Trousseau, and it, it's this like very like ethereally light-bodied red wine, super floral, all kinds of spice notes, um, every tart red fruit. That you could come across blood orange and cranberries and like red apple skin kind of flavors coming through, and it's such a cool wine. It's super versatile across a number of different foods. You can have it with a little chill on it in the summer um, on the patio. And there's still so little of it being planted um, in California and Oregon that I don't think a lot of people have come across it. But I I just absolutely love it. If I was ever going to make wine, this would not make any financial sense to do. But I would want to do like seven single vineyard Trousseau's and just like, well, that would be my lineup. Like people do Pinot Noirs throughout, like throughout Oregon, they focus on single vineyard Pinot Noirs. I want to do that with Trousseau and then probably never sell any wine and close the label up in two years. What part of being a sommelier is the most fun for you? When you see someone like click food and wine together and how it sort of makes sense and why... The profession of a sommelier, like, really exists. You can see it on their face, like every single time it happens on their face, because it's like this, this almost like visceral reaction to like the flavors and the combination going on that just kind of opens people's eyes to how special a combination of food and wine can be. Uh, for our, the opening menu we did at Agni, we had a dumpling, like a, a, a Sichuan style dumpling in chili oil, and the pairing that I did for that was Bud Light because traditionally. If you're in Sichuan China, you're probably going to have like local rice lager uh, with your spicy dumplings. So we were talking about that and like, all right, local beer made out of rice. I mean, this is bud light we're talking about. like why why not just give people bud light? And the amount of people who said, you know over the course of the like two months we we that was the one pairing I never changed by the way, it was the bud light with the dumpling. The amount of people who said that that was the best bud light they've ever had, when all it was was just the same bud light you've ever had in your life, you know it was like 50 percent of the tables like commented on how great this bud light tasted. And I thought that was always super cool of you can take the most mundane beverage and put it in the right light, and people understand that there's something different that you're doing here.
0: When you get the chance to go out to dinner, do you compulsively check the wine beverage list to see what they have, or are you just able to separate yourself?
1: Oh yeah, I check it before time. So that way I'm not boring my wife at the table because uh, I've already looked through the full beverage selection instead of flipping through the, the wine list while she's just sitting there waiting for me to be done. What do you think is the next wine region to explode? We've had a few different answers for this. So we've
0: gotten you know Mexico, certain um, areas of the Pacific Northwest and Oregon, uh, the Finger Lakes, Michigan. Is there one you know around the world that you think is... On the come up, but still kind of underrated, but everybody should be paying
1: attention to over the course of the next five years. Michigan and the Finger Lakes are probably really good choices for that. I spent a lot of time uh, looking through the Silicon Valley Bank wine report. Uh, Rob McMillan, who's the head of their uh, wine division every year, compiled this super data-intense wine report. And the trends that you see over the last several years is that... Basically like light bodied, high acid white wine and sparkling wine are by far the largest like growth movers within wine across like all price points that kind of falls in line with a lot of the best of what's done, I think in the Finger Lakes and and in Michigan, the West Coast. I think there's just so many uh, barriers financially, the, the cost of doing business out there, the cost of land as you get into Michigan is like, you know. Maybe that's where I need to start looking to to start my, my Trousseau wine brand because it's actually approachable. Um and I think anywhere you can look that outside of the the classic like super expensive fully planted wine regions where you can get sparkling wine and like crisp bright whites for reasonable prices, I think. That was re in Spain 10, 15 years ago. And now Alberino went from a unheard of grape to pretty wide, pretty common. And I think something along those lines is probably where we should be looking. Columbus is still a beer town.
0: You're still a beer guy to some extent, I, I'd imagine. So do you think the city's drinking habits are, are shifting at all since you've been involved? You know, you got 20 years in the business. You think things are moving towards something else? I mean, there's for a time they moved towards the alcohol seltzers, but according to all the data, those sales have kind of dropped off, you know, they still sell a lot of it, but. Columbus is a drinking city. What
1: what do you see? I work in a pretty small segment of the Columbus drinking scene. I think when I was interviewing uh, with Avishar and his team at Agni, you know, I, I told them my experience at the Refectory. If it taught me anything, it's that there is a market for people who really love wine in Columbus, and it's a market that is largely untapped. You know, it's the Refectory. It's you know maybe like. A couple of other places, obviously like Veritas and Chapman's and Commune, all have fun wine programs. They're not like deep, extensive wine programs in the same way that you would find options like that in New York and San Francisco and Chicago. And a lot of diners that we have at Agni, that I had at the refectory, travel to all these places and drink great wine at nice restaurants and all these places. So I've always been a firm believer that there's a large, untapped demand for serious wine programs in the city here. So, I definitely I want to be a part of that growth as it continues and as, you know, as the venture capital money and Intel and all that brings more tech business into central Ohio. There's a lot of people who like me spent time in the Bay Area and then came to Columbus for for whatever reason and ha- are bringing that dining and drinking experience with them. I don't know if that's really going to move the needle in a serious way. You know, for our tiny nine table restaurant, like that's enough for us to be largely successful. Um, I don't know if that uh, is going to be the same broadly speaking. I think Columbus is always going to be a beer town. I think drinking, I guess apparently not Bud Light right now, but drinking Modelo on a football Saturday and you're tailgating, like wine's not going to replace that. Cocktails. Even the ready to drink cocktails, I don't think are going to replace that. I think that is really at the heart of what, you know, kind of the culture of Columbus more than anything is built around like football in the fall. And if you're a part of that, you're probably drinking beer and it's probably like a tw- something you can buy a 24 pack of drink consistently throughout the day and not a 11% triple IPA. Um, and I don't see that changing anytime soon.
0: What's next for you professionally? I mean, you're running the wine program over at Agni, but
1: anything else on the horizon? I'm excited to stay with uh, the team that Avishar's put together. And it's funny, apparently he's lately been getting questions of like, oh, I heard a rumor you're opening a third restaurant. Uh, We don't have a third restaurant. You know, there's not, it's not going to be, you know, he opened Joya's and then six months later opened Agni or almost six months into Agni. That does not mean there's a third restaurant opening up anytime soon, but we definitely all as a team have goals of uh, what we would like to do and further projects for the foreseeable future. I'm, I'm going to be a part of that, and I'm going to do what I can to to help our our little restaurant group, you know, keep pushing great food, super fun beverages in Columbus. And one of the things that really drew me towards working with Abishar, uh, coming off a of Top Chef, he got all these offers for investment money to go open up restaurants wherever and he was adamant he wanted to stay in columbus and only took the investment dollars that let him stay here because he thought we could be seen as a dining destination city and he wanted to be a part of that so i think that that's the next step is what can we do to keep making columbus a, a dining destination
0: most people probably don't know and i mean i sure i was on this podcast but the way he explained it, like joyous wasn't even supposed to be joyous. Like joyous was supposed to be like a window. Like it's just a window on a wall. Like they would cook stuff and like, yeah, your order's ready. It gets passed through and that's it. Like there's not, there wasn't supposed to be an inside. <laughs> yeah. like That's how that started and just evolved into something else. So I'm sure I'll eventually, you know, come up with another concept and, and open something, but it, it's definitely too soon.
1: That that man has has a lot of concepts in his head for sure. You know, there there will be things in the future that we we try and do and try and work on. Nothing that there's like like an imminent. But yeah, apparently he's getting stopped like semi regularly, being like, "Oh, you're opening a third restaurant?" Like I don't know why that word got out. But handful of questions left. This next question
0: comes from uh, Chef uh, Jonathan Mazera of Gem City Butchery out in Dayton. It's also uh, you can find him at Jollity and some of his food on the menu at Silver Slipper Wine Bar out there too. He's a previous guest on the podcast. He left behind a question for you.
1: What's the best thing you've eaten this year? Best thing I've eaten this year. It's a really good question. I think this might just be recency bias, but I had dinner at Novella Osteria in Powell, in like the Northern end of Columbus recently. They had this tomato peach and burrata sort of caprese esque salad on the menu. And, and I think, the tomatoes came from Hirschberger Farms up in, in Northern Ohio. I th- the peaches came from somewhere local. I think it was somewhere different. And it was just, it was super simple and it was like perfectly fresh produce and just delicious. And I think that's the best of what Italian food can offer is just perfect produce on a plate, just with the right amount of acid and salt. And that, that's what stands out to me is the best thing I've had this year.
0: What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? Can be anything.
1: If you weren't in this industry, what do you think you'd find yourself doing?
0: Next question comes from one of our listeners. They wrote in, but is there
1: an Ohio wine you'd recommend? The best Ohio wine I've had is Marco Vineyards. They're um, up in Geneva, like right on the lake. And I had a probably like a spotless level ripeness Riesling from them. That was about 18 years old the time I had it. Unbelievable. I mean, that was... It's not just the best Ohio wine I've ever had, but I mean, it would go toe to toe with great Riesling from any serious Riesling wine region in the world. After that, I became a pretty big fan of Marco. I think most of the great Ohio wines come from that sort of like Geneva, Geneva on the Lake uh, area in northeastern Ohio. There is a project being worked on in uh, Lancaster right now that former winemaker from Mondavi, the winemaker that I worked with when I was there. She is consulting on a winery project in Lancaster, and I know they've planted a couple of hybrid varietals and some Cabernet Franc as well. And I could not be more excited for what's going to come out of here because this winemaker, her name's uh, Nova Catamadre, and she is I mean, she's super smart. She is a master of wine. She got her viticulture and analogy degree from Cornell she would not be attaching her name to something that she didn't believe could be quality wine. So something to look forward to in probably like three or four years. She left Mandavi and now she has a small winery actually up in the Finger Lakes called uh, Trestle 31 that makes some really, really delicious Riesling. And now she has consultation projects in Napa as well. So she's still doing work over there. She has as good of a track record as you can have in this industry. And those are not the people that you see working in wine production in Ohio, usually.
0: So this last set of questions we ask to everybody who comes on the podcast, nice compare and contrast for the listeners across all the episodes. First question, who would you say is the biggest influence on your wine, your sommelier career thus far? When you look back on it.
1: Be uh, Jeff Alasky, the former wine director of the refectory. What is your desert Island wine? It's gotta be some champagne. I'd say say crew grand cuvee
0: restaurant. You recommend that isn't your own person gets stuck at the airport Flight canceled, stuck overnight. You guys aren't open. They reach out to you. Hey, where should we go eat? You point them in this direction.
1: Ooh, is it ch- cheating if I say Joya's? It's-, <laughs> it's not the restaurant you work at, so no. No, that's that's the restaurant I personally eat at more than anywhere else in Columbus. So I mean, I'm probably just going to send you to Joya's or go to Fox in the Snow for that egg sandwich.
0: We eat at Joya's a lot. And two reasons is one, we have a 15 month old, so you're limited on time and what you can do. Two also there's not a whole lot of places that are open for lunch anymore post pandemic. I mean, and that's any major city. I mean, San Francisco, you see it, New York, like it's hard to find places that you can go get lunch
1: from. Like it's it just is. Well, and especially working nights like we do in this industry, a place that does a killer like brunch or lunch. So you, you don't need to wake up for breakfast hours to go get it. I mean, that's that's gonna hit for industry folks every time.
0: Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant, place you've never been to, you still want to visit, place you've never eaten at, but you still want to dine at one day.
1: Travel, I actually, despite the fact that I absolutely love Burgundy, I've never been to Burgundy. So let's say um, Burgundy as a whole and bucket list to eat at Pujol, Mexico City. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working. Gary Denko. we had this probably safe to assume Homeless person come in and ask to use the restroom. And we let her like just yeah, sure, why not? Go use the restroom. And then she's in there for probably like 30 minutes. And then she comes out just fully naked into the dining room, just walking out and like yelling a bunch of stuff too. That was definitely not the vibe we were going for at that restaurant. Did she leave on her own accord, or did you guys have to call the police to come get her? We called the police, but also we I think she left, but we had a no one wanted to really like touch her, obviously. Um, so it was, yeah, it was like, it, Hey, we need you to like, stop doing everything that you're doing right now. Gary Denko used to, uh, I'm sure they still do. They would give very generous like discounts to people in, in public service. So like firefighters and police, I think both cause they just wanted to give back to the community, but also that meant that a lot of the San Francisco police have eaten basically for free at Gary Denko. So we got our calls responded to real quick.
0: Food or drink guilty pleasures? Is there anything fast food, candy, whatever that you know is unhealthy for you, but you just can't help yourself?
1: Lately, it's been Mexican Coca-Cola, like the stuff made with cane sugar. We have that at, at the restaurant for a cocktail that we do, and it's just sitting around. It's real hard to, to resist. All right. So this next one is wine recommendations. So we broke it into four
0: categories. So it's zero to 20, zero to 50, zero to a hundred and over a hundred. So if you have three that are under twenty dollars, you can fit one in each of those categories. So you don't have to go, you know, between twenty and fifty for the second one. So, this is just things that you think people should be drinking. Um, you know, that they can find. People that are interested in wine, expanding past your Miomi or, or whatever that you're going to find in the grocery store uh, on the shelf there. So, first
1: category zero to twenty. What do you recommend? I think any chocolina. So. Uh, white wine from Basque country in northern Spain, Chocolina. Most of it that you'll see will be under twenty dollars. And just as a rule, it's like slightly bubbly. It's bright. It's fresh. It's kind of salty. It's delicious. Great with most seafood. Great with summer weather. I drink it in the winter too, though. I think zero to fifty. I don't know. I would. I would probably look into the Willamette Valley and do some Pinot Noir from the Willamette. Probably just because I grew up there, but. Patricia Green is one of my favorite producers. I don't know if this is true, but I've heard they make more single vineyard bottlings than anyone else in the United States. I think they do like 30 different single vineyard Pinot Noirs. So there's a huge wide range of what you could get from them. Their their entry level Pinot is probably around $30 retail, and then they kind of go up from there and it tastes like home to me. Zero to a hundred. Now it's starting to get a little interesting. Champagne should get good grower producer champagne something like a Pierre Gimene, Blanc de Blanc. I wouldn't qu- quite push the 100. That's probably 60 to 70 or something in that range nowadays. It's it's hard. I The retail pricing, I, I don't know off the top of my head. Killer, 100% Chardonnay, small family-owned winery, and it is delicious, and everyone should treat themselves to some legitimate good sh- champagne every now and then. And then over 100. Over 100. I think whatever style of wine somebody likes... If that's cab, if it's Pinot Noir, whatever it is, they should, if they're willing to like really, really splurge, just go buy obscenely expensive bottle of like the best of the best sometime and just experience that. You know, if you drink Napa cab, I don't know if you really wanted to go for it, spend the money on like Harlan, which is probably like a thousand dollars a bottle now, but Harlan Napa cab is it is so good it is like i don't know if it's worth the money but there's a reason that it costs that much and, and it is it is in a lot of ways justified if you love pinot noir go get you know spend a thousand dollars on some grand crew you know bon mar from uh i don't know now rumier is more than that now so Gislaine laying or something uh grand you know and, and whatever that it is whatever it is you love like just save up the money put a little aside and go f- Google whatever you need to to hunt it down and just find the best of the best and really see why people are willing to spend four and sometimes five figures on these bottles of wine. What is one book focused on beverage you think everyone should read? If you are in the industry and you want to be really great at beverage, you should read Setting the Table by Danny Meyer, which is about hospitality, not about beverage. But I think people in their early in their career, when they get power over being a buyer and writing programs and wine lists, they make the wine program that they want to drink at, and they forget that they should be making it for their guests. And I think Danny Meyer's philosophy on hospitality is helpful to keep in mind for that.
0: I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody is or was Uh, if you were, is there a moment episode scene that still stands out to you about him? If you weren't, is there anybody else who was on TV julia child emerald that uh, you always kind of gravitated towards when you were coming up through your
1: career yeah i think i was definitely a big bourdain fan and i don't know about an episode necessarily but there's this quote that i just happened to have so i pulled it up that i think is always stood out to me from uh from bourdain is you can always tell when a person has worked in a restaurant There's an empathy that can only be cultivated by those who've stood between a hungry mouth and a $28 pork chop, a special understanding of the way a bunch of motley misfits can be a family. Service industry work develops the soft skills recruiters talk about on LinkedIn, discipline, promptness, the ability to absorb criticism, and most important, how to read people like a book. The work is thinkless and fun and messy, and the world would be a kinder place if more people tried it. With all due respect to my former professors, I've long believed I gained more knowledge in kitchens, bars, and dining rooms than any college could ever hold. Could not be more applicable to my life. Where can people find you? Social media, website, reservations, plug everything. Yeah. Um, my social media is just kraus.jared on, on Instagram. That's the only thing I ever post really on. Um, but everyone should come check us out at Agni. Dine at agni.com Dine at Agni on Instagram. You know, we've only been open for about, about five months now, but I think we are doing a ton of cool stuff. We are pouring cool beverages. You know, our our wine program is what I would be running if I was running a wine program in San Francisco. We're not at any way sort of cutting corners because we're we're not in a large market. So um, and, and it's the same thing with the food. Abishar would be putting out this menu in New York if he, he opened the restaurant there. So I think uh, talk uh, is how you can book reservations. So go to uh, exploretalk.com and search for Agni and, and book a reservation. And let me pour you some champagne.
0: Yep, you guys are open Wednesday through Sunday, 5 to 11. A la carte menu at the bar is available. Bars kind of walk in too. And then there's a chef's counter that you can book too if it's open for reservations too. But we've been there. We had a great time. So yeah, we'll be back. We usually wait for a handful of dishes to change over. We're one of those people. We're few and far between, but we just keep an eye on like the menu. And then once enough of it has changed, we're like, all right, we're going back. And we just kind of rotate through a bunch of different restaurants and stuff. That's how we approach it. But
1: late September, we're changing the menu again. More, More like fall flavors coming through. So you'll have to check us out in the fall.
0: That's right around the corner so yeah looking forward to that but it's not pretentious. it's a cool space, cool atmosphere. yeah, we had a great time you know it was our first time there and it exceeded our expectations, which was really impressive too as well. so couldn't recommend it enough to people looking for a new spot or a place that they haven't tried or, or whatever. but yeah otherwise uh, yeah we'll be seeing you soon then with the menu changes and um, stay in touch let us know if you need anything. But, uh, otherwise thank you for coming on. We'll be seeing you soon. Awesome. Thanks so much. Big thanks again to Jared for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of day to chat about his career and wine, uh, the industry at large, being back in Columbus, Agni, all that stuff. So again, you can follow him on Instagram. It's at Krause.Jared. Also make sure to follow Agni. It's at at Agni. One word, no spaces, no underscores, anything like that. You can check out their website too as well. They usually change over the menu a couple times a year. They just start going through a new change now. So it's pretty much all going to be updated, tasting menu, all that stuff. And um, you can do reservations through the website Talk or Talk's app too as well. Check out our website, SpoonMob.com. Make sure to follow us on Instagram. We're just at SpoonMob. We're on all the other social media platforms, except for threads. We never did that. Mainly, it's just we put up an update on TikTok in advance of the whatever the next episode is that drops. Uh, We usually do it like Wednesday nights. Um, So you can get a little bit of a preview as to who the guest is. So you can follow us there. Our handle is just at spoon mob on that. Um, We'll pop around Reddit from time to time. Don't really do much with Twitter. Don't really do much with Facebook. Facebook is just kind of incorporated into the Instagram because they're owned by the same company. So when we post something on Instagram, it just goes to the Facebook page, but you can find us there too as well, if you'd like. And then yeah, the website too. But uh, appreciate everybody who's been listening. Uh, appreciate everybody who's been spreading the word, writing in questions and feedback and recommendations and all that stuff. So awesome to see. Do a mailbag episode. I have a lot of questions that have been written in that I haven't been able to incorporate for one reason or another into a guest episode. Whether it's something that comes up naturally in the conversation, it's something that's already been asked, it's something that doesn't fit. So there are good questions in there, just there's not, we haven't been able to put all of them into an episode. So I might just blow those out, like knock out a bunch of them and just kind of do a mailbag. Um, some of them have been directed at us too, as well as to kind of like, what's your dream guest and all this stuff. So be on the lookout for that. We might just drop that as like a mini update episode or something, try and keep it around like 30 minutes or so if I can, but tinkering with that idea. So, um, we might throw something up on Instagram, see if that's something that people would want to listen to. Yeah, that's it for this week. So again, appreciate everybody who's been listening. Make sure to go vote for us. Best Community Partner, Ohio Restaurant Association Industry Awards 2023. Just go to their website or use one of the links that we have posted and uh, make sure to throw us a vote. Have through the end of September for that. But otherwise, if you're new here, welcome. If you've been here for a while, thank you for your continued support. And we will talk to you guys
1: next week on Thursday.